Today's episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast is proud to be partnered with Anchor Podcasts. Anchor is the easiest way for anyone to make a podcast. If you have a latent idea that's just kind of lying around for a show you would like to record one day, I'm confident that anyone could use this platform to host, record, and distribute your podcast, turning your idea into a reality. Anchor puts everything you need to be successful all in one place. You can start a new recording right from your mobile device. They also have convenient creation tools that allow you to edit your audio files so they sound crisp and great. Anchor also distributes your podcast for you, letting listeners find your show almost everywhere, including Spotify, Anchor Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and several others. And best of all, it's free. There are no hosting fees or monthly subscriptions or minimum listener counts, just an easy-to-use platform to get your podcast out there at no cost to you. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm, of course, your host, Pastor Brad Gray. I serve as the senior pastor of Stonington Baptist Church right here in Paxinos, Pennsylvania. I am so uh, happy to be uh, coming uh, to you uh, through your ear holes on another episode of this uh, podcast, another uh, chance for me to just uh, share uh, some things that have been on my heart and, and stuff that I've been uh, learning, reflecting on, uh, chewing on, as I like to say, and uh, hopefully uh, you can find some uh, enrichment and encouragement throughout the course of me uh, really just uh, rambling, um, and I mean that in the best possible way, <laughs> uh, but I do have to be uh, a little bit honest with myself that sometimes I just get uh, into these shows and I just talk and uh, it's okay. Um, I do plan these and uh, I do uh, usually like to stick to a quote format um, just to keep – that, that that helps my brain uh, be able to kind of think through things and be able to know what I'm going to do and say and all that kind of stuff. So, But uh, regardless – I've been uh, really encouraged by just me being able to do this, <laughs> so hopefully you can be encouraged too. Um, there is a sense in which I, I, I do this podcast for my own sake, and I know that that sounds like a little bit selfish, um, but it's really just for me to be able to think out loud uh, about uh, stuff that I'm reading, stuff that I'm, uh, I've been impacted by uh, through the Holy Spirit and uh, the reading of Christ's Word, and so. But um, but I do hope and I, I do pray that you are uh, blessed by these podcasts as well. Um, you know, uh, I, I do want them to be impactful. <laughs> I do want them to be encouraging, and hopefully, you can find. Uh, something to uh, to enrich your faith and to grow your faith and to perhaps challenge your faith too, uh, all at the same time. So, anyways, that's what I want to do uh, throughout the course of all these episodes. And I know I I say that a lot, but uh, anyways, it just keeps me it, it, it keeps me knowing where I'm going, so to speak. Um, but anyways, I'm so happy to be with you. Uh, we can talk about uh, we can talk about all that on another, on another on, excuse me on another episode, perhaps. Um, hopefully, you listened to last week's uh, podcast. I was so blessed to uh, have my dear friend Abby, uh, Abby Tyler Todd, on the show. Um, 
I'm really thankful for him. I'm really appreciative of his friendship. He's a pastor now as well. Uh, well, he was a pastor in Georgia, but he's uh, since since the last time I talked to him made a big transition in life as well, uh, moving from Georgia to uh, Southern Illinois uh, to take a church, Third Baptist Church uh, in Marion, um, Illinois. And uh, I, I, I hope you'll listen to that show only because it was a great chance, a great opportunity to not just uh, catch up with him, but also uh, hear how he's doing in ministry, uh, but also reflect on his book uh, a little bit. Uh, he's I mean, you may think that I'm a prolific writer, and I don't. I don't mean to say that self-referentially, but I only say that to say he Abby is a is a way better writer than I think I could ever hope to be. Uh, he has a grasp of of history and theology, and he's able to put that into layman's terms, if I can use that phrase, in order to make something impactful that you might otherwise just kind of turn up your nose at. Um, he he does that really well, and so, anyways, I, I hope you'll listen to that show. So it's it's long. I'm not gonna be uh, I'm not gonna beat around the bush. You know, uh, me and him. <laughs> whenever, actually, if you'll go through the archives of this podcast shows from the past, almost always. Actually, no, I can say that definitively. Always, it is the case that the longest episodes are the ones where uh, Abby and I um, are on the show together. Uh, he's just he's just a great conversationalist, and and I think that's what makes theology so powerful is that it can be conversational. You can just kind of be talking about rich, uh, important truths um, in just a conversational way. And uh, for whatever reason, uh, Abby makes makes that kind of easy. Uh, so anyways, I highly recommend you listen to that one. Um, I had so much fun um, putting that together, and uh, hopefully it'll be impactful for you, uh, be encouraging to you, uh, if you can make it through the hour and forty minutes that we talk. So, uh, but I do recommend that to uh, uh, recommend that to you. Um, what I want to do on the show today uh, is talk through some things, uh, my sermon from this past Sunday, uh, talk about some books that I've been reading, and then some uh, encouraging articles that I've found, um, all revolving around the concept of a pastor theologian, uh, which might be something you you may or may not be familiar with that. Um <clears throat> But regardless, I, I want to kind of think through those things, uh, read some excerpts from uh, the particular articles that I've uh, earmarked, and then uh, hopefully you can find some encouragement through all that. So uh, that's the show in a nutshell. Uh, but before we get there, let's hear a little commercial um, from Fresh Roasted Coffee, uh, my my friends over there. And uh, thanks again for them for sponsoring this podcast. So listen to that commercial really quick. And then uh, when we come back, we'll get right into uh, what I want to talk about uh, today. So here we go. Do you like coffee? I know that you do, and that's why I want to tell you about Fresh Roasted Coffee. Fresh Roasted is a locally owned and operated coffee house right here in central Pennsylvania that is committed to providing the highest quality coffee on earth. They do so by sourcing only the freshest coffee beans and by using the most eco-friendly roasting technology in the world. Fresh Roasted's USDA certified organic coffee beans ensure that your coffee is consistently regulated at each stage of the production process and completely free of GMOs and harmful synthetic substances. Fresh Roasted Coffee roasts their beans per order with immediate packaging and shipping directly to your door, meaning that you get to experience fresh coffee at its peak drinkability. That's what I like. 
I was introduced to fresh roasted coffee soon after moving to central Pennsylvania, and I'm so happy I was because I think it's literally the best coffee out there. Their Blackbeard's Revenge blend is out of this world good. Whether you use a regular drip coffee maker or pour over or a French press, however you get your coffee fix, make it fresh roasted. Go to the link in the notes for this show and use the offer code GRACE10 at checkout. That's offer code GRACE10 at checkout to get a discount on your next order. Okay, so this past Sunday was uh, the 30th of May, uh, the day before Memorial Day, and um, I took a little bit of a break from uh, the regularly scheduled programming, <laughs> if you'll, uh, if I can say that, uh, because I didn't, I, I wasn't preaching from First Kings. So, uh, if you know, I, I've been traversing through the books of First and Second Kings. I'm roughly around First uh, Kings chapter fourteen, which I will get to in a few weeks after some weeks of uh, different services at my church or at the church. If you're a listener uh, and you also attend Stonington, <laughs> um, but. Uh, but I wanted to take a break uh, only because uh, I've been thinking about this particular passage from Matthew chapter 5. It's those verses uh, 17 through 20 in which Jesus talks about uh, the righteousness which uh, garners entry into the kingdom, uh, and namely, it's a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, which is a really provocative statement. Um uh, and I think we don't often realize how provocative it was, but, you know, Jesus is saying something incredibly, incredibly radical, if I can use that term, which sometimes that word is overused. Um, but needless to say, it's, it's a very radical statement he's making here in this, in this particular passage at the opening of, you know, his, his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And, but I think that the, this particular section, um, verses 17 through 20 of chapter 5, I, I believe really is the, the hinge of the entire sermon. Um, and I, and you know, like, you know, particular some preachers would tell you that if you want to, you want an effective sermon, you need to state, you know, the sermon in a sentence, you know, here's my sermon summary or whatever. Um, if I can apply that rubric to Jesus uh, in this particular moment, uh, I would say that this these verses constitute his sermon summary. Hey, you've heard about the kingdom, Jesus is seemingly saying, and you've heard about righteousness, and you know that, you know, because you're a good Jew, and you know that practicing the law uh, garners you righteousness, which means you can enter into that heavenly kingdom. Well, let me tell you exactly what that looks like, <laughs> uh, because basically what Jesus does is, is exactly that, is show you, uh, show the crowd, um, show his disciples and the Pharisees who are perhaps standing in the wings uh, to, uh, he's showing them exactly what the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven looks like. Uh, and it looks like something way beyond any anything that they had ever imagined. Um, it's a righteousness that exceeds anything that they could ever pull off, anything that they could ever dream of fulfilling. Uh, this is what he's talking about. Um, and, and he's sort of opening up that conversation by, uh, by having this incredibly incendiary statement right here at the beginning. Hey, no part of the law is allowed to be demeaned or compromised or diminished in any single way. All of it is 
worthy of being upheld. Um, and not only that, uh, it's so much greater than what you would ever know um, because it requires absolute 100% 24-7 righteousness. And it's righteous that has no variations. It has no uh, sort of deviations. None of that None of that stuff is allowed. It's, it's righteousness all the time. Uh, it's it's stringent. It's this is a strict righteousness that we um, are called uh, to uh, perform uh, if you are living by the letter of the law. And I think uh, this is what I was hoping to. Uh, I was striving to show, just as the course of expositing this passage, is that verse twenty, where Jesus makes that statement. Verse twenty four. I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall no, in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is the turning point. Um, the turning point of the sermon that he's giving, the Sermon on the Mount, is, is that, that statement. Um, and he's, it, it, you know, it, it's, it's sort of like a shock and awe moment. Um, it, but the the key point is is that Jesus is not just doing this for shock and awe, but he's he's he, that's what he's intending to do is is decimate everyone's hope of living according to the letter of the law and showing them that that is a categorical impossibility. <laughs> it's not just a difficult thing that the that the scribes and Pharisees have been able to figure out. Uh, he says even they have it wrong because it's more difficult than anyone could ever imagine. In fact, it's impossible. No one's living up to this. No one can manage this type of life. No one can manage entry into the kingdom of heaven by themselves uh, because it's not just perform good, uh, not just perform excellently, you have to perform perfectly. As he says, to summarize this this particular seg- section of the sermon, be ye therefore perfect, he says in verse 48, as your Father in, which is in heaven is perfect. This is the point. This is the benchmark. This is the standard. Uh, there's, there's no pass uh, for your effort. There's no participation ribbon that you can win uh, by your good performances. Um, it's it's all or or nothing. Um, and you might say that we've all uh, won that nothing with our own works. And, and the point of this sermon, uh, through this sort of we could call it a veiled uh, evangelistic sermon is to show everyone the impossibility of living up to the law in and of themselves so that when we come to the end of it and he gives everyone those two options living as though living with the assumption that you can fulfill the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven or uh, you can relinquish any such aspiration uh, you can know that this righteousness has already been fulfilled because the fulfillment of that righteousness is standing right in front of them. This is what Jesus says at the beginning of that section, verse 17. Think not, he says, that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Uh, right there from that very moment, we're being clued in to the gospel uh, that he is coming to preach. It's a gospel of righteousness that he fulfills, a righteousness that he completes, that he finishes, that he wins, that he accomplishes. And anyone who ha- has, uh, who is not believing in that, um, they are standing on the brink of eternal ruin. Um, they're, uh, 
they're standing on the precipice of of damnation. Um, and 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 it, I think that's the seriousness with which we have to approach this particular sermon of the Lord Jesus. Um, it's not just about who's good or and who's a little bit better in terms of living righteously or piously. It's it's who's living uh, a life that will eventually be eternal and who's living a life that will be um, actually a life of eternal ruin. Um, and, and I think what he's aiming to show is that regardless of anyone's uh, predispositions on what is religious and what is righteous, uh, Jesus is showing that barring some unforeseen miracle, uh, it's impossible for you to live up to the righteousness of the law, period. That's that's the that's the the, the statement. It's it's impossible for you to garner for yourself entry into the kingdom of heaven. That's essentially the the rhetorical question that he kind of poses in in verse twenty. Because uh, no one has a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. They were the most holy of men in that particular time, and even their holiness wasn't enough. Even their uh, rigorous righteousness in the schemes of piety wasn't enough. Uh, which, in, in my sermon, I was uh, I, I was blessed with the opportunity to uh, quote from my favorite theologian, Martin Luther, uh, and I was hoping to spent a little more time on this moment, but, you know, time evaded me. But uh, I wanted to delve into exactly uh, what, where I think that, where I think this fits. Um, I, by that I mean, I wanted to spend some more time just talking about the Heidelberg Disputation, which if you aren't familiar, uh, I highly recommend to you, I'll, I'll throw some links, uh, I'll throw a link in, in, in the notes to this particular show uh, that will help you sort of invest yourself in more of what the Heidelberg is. But Luther's Heidelberg Disputation is the lesser known, but perhaps the more important uh, work of theology, especially um, in his early days, uh, in the early days of the Reformation. Everyone knows the 95 Theses, you know, he's nailing this thing, whether he did that in, in for real or for not, uh, that's up for debate. But regardless, you know, Luther's hammer struck that door, uh, nailing the 95 Theses to the door of Witt, uh, Wittenberg, um, or Wittenberg, you know. Um, and there he sort of lit the match that ignited the spark of the Reformation, if you want to be poetic. Uh, but really, the the flame, if I can continue that metaphor, uh, the flame of the Reformation is carried forward by the Heidelberg Disputation, in which his theology is more richly uh, articulated, in which um, mainly he's talking about the righteousness that fulfills the law, and uh, his he's, he's working out his theology through the course of 28 Theses, uh, I really recommend you read that. By the way, this leads me to one of my book recommendations to you. I just picked it up, uh, and I've been uh, investing myself in it. Um, it's uh, Gerard O'Forty's uh, On Being a Theologian of the Cross, Reflections on Luther's Heidelberg Disputation. Um, I had been recommending this book a long time ago, and I just picked it up, and it's really quite investing. Uh, and he gives, um, and really what he's doing throughout this book, at least Forty um, or Ferdy, whatever he, uh, however he pronounces his last name, uh, Ferdy, uh, what he's doing is 
um, articulating the difference between a theology of glory and a theology of the cross, which is essentially how you can describe Martin Luther's whole theological premise and outworking. Um, and I think it's, it comes from the Heidelberg Disputation, but I think also more importantly, like, we can see that this is not just something that Luther is creating out of thin air. I think really the Heidelberg is seen in Matthew 5. Um, and we can see uh, exactly I, – I think you can really see that what Luther was doing was sort of articulating what uh, Jesus was articulating. Um, and therefore, what he's doing is very scriptural based, especially when Luther says, uh, quote – I think this is Theses 18 – uh, of the Heidelberg, quote, it is certain that man must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of Christ. Um, this is the whole fundamental premise, uh, I think, of Jesus's sermon. Uh, you have to despair of your ability of ever fulfilling the righteousness of the law before you can actually accept the grace which fulfills the righteousness of the law. So, therefore, uh, the way to righteousness is by giving up by surrendering, by admitting that you can't, by admitting that all of this is impossible. And therefore, what Jesus' whole mission is, has, is, what it comprises, is of doing what we could never do for ourselves. Um, this is, I think, the proper understanding of grace. Um, this, I think, is the proper understanding of Jesus' preaching ministry. He's the fulfillment of all of these things. He has come... Um, to fulfill all righteousness, as Matthew makes very well known in the first couple chapters, that this is the purpose of his coming. Um, and this is the reason why our faith is what it is, because it's built on something that's firm and solid. Oh, uh, that reminds me, it's, it's like a rock <laughs> uh, from the end of Matthew chapter 7, where he's talking about that very thing, that the wise man builds his house on the rock and the foolish man upon the sand, which I think is exactly what Christ is showing through the course of this sermon, that those who are building their, their religiosity and their righteousness on their own work are like the fool, building their houses of faith on sand. And those who are building their houses on the righteousness that is already fulfilled, that is going to be fulfilled in his own body and blood, those, uh, we would say, are the wise men and women who are building their houses on something sturdy, uh, that's rock-like. Um, I think this is the premise. Um, Luther's Heidelberg is extremely helpful in that regard. Um, and I would also say another book to recommend to you, it's a book I just started reading, uh, David M. King's uh, Your Old Testament Needs to Get Saved. Uh, your Old Testament sermon, excuse me, needs to get saved. A handbook for preaching from preaching Christ from the Old Testament. It's a new uh, uh, publication from Nine Marks and Moody Publishers. Uh, really good, and he actually is talking about uh, you, uh, that very statement that Jesus makes in chapter five, verse seventeen, how he has come to fulfill all of these things, uh, fulfill the law and the prophets, and how that that's sort of the the hinge uh, by which we can understand and proclaim Christ's word. Um, I think that's a really important word for us to hear, and um, I'm really thankful for. I'm really thankful that I got to preach that sermon. Uh, I hope I encourage you to listen to it. Hopefully it impacts you as much as studying it impacted me. Um, 
And uh, I'm really thankful for uh, Ferdy's uh, reflections on the theo- uh, theology of the cross, but also uh, I'll, link, uh, I'll link to some articles I, I, I uh, used also as, I could say, inspiration, if you want, um, from my friends over at 1517, who also uh, made that um, uh, very palpable and uh, very resonant uh, in, in my particular instance. So uh, definitely check that out. Uh, check out that sermon. Check out those books. I highly they recommend them to you. Another book that I just finished reading um, is Harold Sankbell's Christ and Calamity, Grace and Gratitude in the Darkest uh, Valley. Um, this is probably one of the fastest books I've ever read. Um, I think that's both because it's easy to read. Uh, Sinkball is very readable, but its content also is very, very helpful and practical. Um, and it's a book that's written uh, very much uh, in the moment, so to speak. He talks about the pandemic and, and other calamitous seasons of life and, and how we can endure those because of who is with us in those storms. Uh, namely, it's Christ himself. So uh, if you are enduring some sort of struggle, uh, and who isn't? Um, this is definitely a book to pick up. It's it's one that I think you will find uh, just very comforting. Uh, it's a book of consolation. It's a book of of comfort, and it's a book of grace. And uh, I think you'll you'll definitely uh, enjoy in, enjoy that read. Uh, so there's a little plug for that. Um, okay, so on to what I really wanted to get into. Um, which is just talking about uh, a, a, a couple articles, uh, four, namely, uh, all about the idea of a pastor theologian. Um, I've been encouraged by the recent emphasis on this, that um, pastors need to be considered, need to consider theology um, even even if they aren't sort of ministering in a scholastic setting, and I would say especially if they aren't. And there's been several uh, online outlets that have um, had articles and essays up on this theme. Um, I think it's fitting that I begin with uh, the uh, editor's essay um, over at the Center for Pastor Theologians. Uh, I think it's fitting I start there, considering that's in their name. Uh, it's Gerald Highstand, and he's writing uh, an article entitled The Challenges and Possibilities and Continuing Need for the Pastor Theologian. Um, and here in this brief little essay, Gerald um, stresses, emphasizes the mission of the Center for Pastor Theologians, uh, which is to replant the idea of theology in ministry uh, from and sort of take it out of the world of academia and kind of replant it in the local church. Uh, that's where it's needed. That's where it's necessary. And that's the that's the calling of a pastor. I think this is very evident if you read uh, St. Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus. Uh, they're deeply theological, and he encourages them to uh, to don't shy away from theology. In fact, invest yourself more in it as the days uh, grow worse and worse, so to speak, as there are many who are calling you to, encouraging you, enticing you to focus on other things. Paul's uh, encouragement to Timothy and Titus is to uh, to resist such urges and to find your greatest uh, need uh, to be in the sound doctrine of God. Um, and I think this is uh, similar to what 
um, Gerald is here getting at uh, in, in this particular essay, but he writes, quote, uh, when we bring these two insights together, it becomes immediately apparent that the migration of our theologians from the social location of the local church to the social location of the academy cannot help but impact the texture and focus of contemporary theological discourse. Whereas in the past, nearly all of North American theology was by nature pastoral theology, today nearly all of North American theology is by nature academic theology. The academic environment is a necessary and legitimate social location in its own right, but it is not the church. Theology in the academic context tends to be more apologetic and data-driven. Theology in the church tends to be more concerned about articulating and applying the church's message, thus the Center for Pastor Theologians. And here he's uh, sort of reviving but restating and re-emphasizing the purpose for uh, the CPT, the Center for Pastor Theologians, only to say that they want to make it pastoral. They want to uh, have pastors who are invested in theology, and not just from a scholastic standpoint, but uh, in bringing it to bear um, in cr- everyday church-going lives. Um, that that's 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 the real heart of theology. I think uh, it, it shouldn't be as something that's that scares people away. Uh, I think that word tends to do that at times. Um, it scares people because we've associated it so much uh, with the idea uh, that it's only for the scholastics, for the academics, for those who are investing uh, their lives in institutional theology, so to speak. Uh, but what this center does, what Gerald does through this essay, is really show that it's it's a need for the local church, uh, for those of us, uh, for those that you're sitting in the pew next to, that you're that you're going to Sunday school with, perhaps. Um, uh, they are theologians. Um, you maybe you don't think of yourself as that way, but if you go to church, you're making theological assumptions and statements by your the very nature of you attending church. And um, that's you know that's something R.C. Sproul was famous for saying. Uh, everyone's a theologian. Um, again, theology is not only the burden uh, for a select few people in the local church, or it's it's I think the felt need. It is the growing need for everyone in the pews um, it, 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 to have rich, robust theologies. And no, that doesn't mean they have to know all the technical terms. But theology is not about the technicality of terminology. It's about in being invested in who our God is. Um, I, I think this is uh, pastors, they can be burdened with the preciseness of theology, but I think the burden also of pastors is to bring to bear that preciseness in a way that is resonant and palpable and real for, uh, you know, Joe Schmo sitting in the pew. Um, that's, that's their calling. Um, uh, pastors, are, they're called to be pastor theologians. Uh, they're called to uh, dispense and disseminate uh, the rich theology of God's gospel and God's truth for the for the precise benefit of the of the sheep that He's called to shepherd. That's that's the, the office. That's the office of what a a pastor and overseer is. Um, that kind of brings me to the next article I want to highlight, which is an a- article aptly titled "Pastor Theologians" by Tom Askell, uh, writing over on founders. Um, 
Eskold writes uh, very fervently, uh, sort of identifying the current need for pastor theologians to fill today's pulpits. And he writes, quote, Churches are to be served by pastors who are sound theologians. That idea strikes many as strange today because the last 100 years have witnessed a separation of those two roles. Um, really quick sidebar, that's sort of what uh, the Center for Pastor Theologians highlights as well. Uh, but back to Askell, quote, Pastors belong in churches, while theologians we have been led to believe belong in universities and seminaries. Paul's instruction to Titus, however, forces us to admit that every pastor is called to be a theologian. The truth that God has revealed in his word is to be explored, understood, believed, taught, and defended. That describes the work of a theologian. And a pastoral ministry cannot be effectively carried out by a man who does not engage in this kind of effort. The greatest theologians in the history of the church have been faithful pastors. And the greatest pastors in the history of the church have been careful theologians. Obviously, the names appearing on both lists, with rare exceptions, are the same. Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Gill, Edwards, Fuller, Spurgeon, and Lloyd-Jones were all pastor theologians. They were men who took the apostolic qualifications for elders seriously and, in fulfillment of their calling to shepherd God's people, faithfully gave themselves to the work of theology. If we hope to see renewed spiritual vitality come to our churches, then we must insist that those who serve as pastors recognize that inherent in their calling is the responsibility to be sound theologians. Only then will God's people be properly instructed in the way of Christ and effectively protected against the errors and heresies that corrode spiritual health. End quote. I think Askell is right on point with this statement. Um, I think one of the main reasons why there has been so much uh, fluctuation and ebbing and flowing within the church is precisely because we've grown to believe that theology is for the academics, so therefore some of those things don't matter nearly as much for my particular context. And again, that's just inherently false. Um, the Christian is called to be a theologian, uh, ne uh, never mind the pastor, um, the, the one who is charged with God's word ought to be considered with theology and also ought to be concerned with uh, sort of showing why that that is so important, why it's so uh, necessary for uh, the regular churchgoer to be concerned with theology too, um, which kind of brings me uh, to the last piece I want to highlight, which is a piece by John Hoyam over on 1517. Uh, he highlights a theologian, a pastor theologian that Askell doesn't mention and might never mention <laughs> only because of who it was, uh, Gerhard uh, Ferdy, the, the guy that I mentioned earlier, uh, who wrote that book on being a theologian of the cross. Uh, Hoyam writes sort of an overview of Ferdy's life and ministry and his theology entitled Gerhard Ferdy, Ferdy uh, a recommendation. Um, Ferdy is, to be quite frank with you, is somewhat of a controversial uh, con a confessional Lutheran theologian um, who, though, as Hoyam writes, recovered a very healthy preoccupation with the doctrine of justification by faith. That was sort of his uh, operative sort of mode. That's that's where he sort of sat and 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 wanted to to minister as a theologian, as a pastor, as one who's concerned with these things. That's where Ferdy rested. Um, 
I don't need necessarily to get into the controversy that surrounds him. Just know that there's a lot that you can benefit by from Ferdy's uh, sort of writing and works. Um, and here's a, a little passage from Hoyam in this article. He writes, quote, Among Ferdy's most important contributions, and there are many, is his insistence on the inseparability of theology from preaching. If theology doesn't prepare the pastor to enter the pulpit or the Christian to address the neighbor with the gospel's glad tidings, it has fallen short of its one purpose. At the center of Ferdy's theology is the event of Christ's cross, which brings to an end the primal human ambition to be God, instead of being a creature who receives all good things from God. This, I think, is is so necessary to highlight, and it's why I wanted to kind of leave it last, um, is to just make that point. Theology is for preaching, and it's for living. As uh, Hoyam says that Ferdy is really adamant about articulating, it's, it's for the pastor uh, in the pulpit, but it's also for the Christian in the pew as they leave that church sanctuary uh, and go and interact with their neighbors with their co-workers, with their friends, with those who they see in the grocery store. Those are theological moments. Uh, we don't think of that oftentimes, but that's what they are. Um, this is what theology is for. God, the theology of God's law and God's gospel isn't just meant for the halls of, of, of scholastic thought. It's meant to be rejoiced and lived and loved and, uh, and, and just... It's meant to be uh, a rejuvenating and, and invigorating uh, piece of of the Christian life. And I would say it's meant to be all of the the Christian life, um, it, regardless of what area of life you live and operate in. It's meant for you. We are all called to be theologians, and therefore it's necessary for us to articulate articulate accurately uh, the theology of the cross. Which I think is why it's important we are thinking about Ferdy here. He, he, uh, Hoyam writes, uh, continuing in that same article, quote, theology is not, as sometimes conceived, a speculative activity theologians undertake to peer into God's majesty and glory. Glory. Instead, Scripture's teachings are organized dogmatically so that preachers can bestow the gifts and promises of God on their hearers. To be a theologian is not primarily to think about God, but to hear God's word and then deliver its commands and promises to others. This, I think, is getting at the heart of what we're talking about. Um, it's the preacher's job to bring to bear theology in a way that is effective, that is uh, resonant, that is enriching and encouraging, and that uh, in that way, uh, the churchgoer sees their need for theology itself. That's what I think it means to deliver God's word and God's gospel, to preach the whole counsel of God, so to speak. Um, which kind of leads me to the last article I want to highlight, which is an article uh, by Michael Pullman over on uh, the Substack blog, Some Pastors and Teachers. Um, because I think this leads, it's a good segue from that treatment of Ferdy by Hoyam, uh, wherein Michael Pullman is, is basically making the case that if your theology doesn't make you zealously evangelistic, it might be time to sort of question or interrogate that theology that you have. Um, 
And I'm going to leave you with this because uh, what Michael does in this article is he references a tweet from a COVID doctor who advocates for zealous vaccinations. Uh, the tweet says, our vaccine strategy going forward must be to reach the unreached with vaccines before COVID does. End quote. So uh, that's a very uh, just loaded tweet in and of itself. And I'm not going to get into the whole like vaccine argument. But what I love what Michael does is he proceeds to write on how that sort of strategy sort of and the zeal behind it must be sort of the same zeal with which our theology informs our evangelism. Um, I'll just leave you with this quote from Michael. Quote, do we hear the cries of the unconverted, unconverted in our communities? In our churches, pastors, it seems, are far quicker to engage in the latest social media spat than to labor for the conversion of lost sinners. How many threads, after all, are serving the cause of the lost, the lost in our own churches or communities? Richard Baxter's rhetorical question is the one is one the social media pastor needs to hear. Who is able to talk of controversies or of nice, unnecessary points or even of truths of a lower degree of necessity? How excellent soever, while he sees a company of ignorant, carnal, miserable sinners before his eyes who must be changed or damned. Some of us need to put our phones and laptops away, Michael continues, and actually talk to the unbelievers in our midst. End quote. Michael's point is well taken. This is the point of it all. Uh, again, theology that's sequestered to schools of academic thought is really a, not a useful theology. Uh, our theology uh, must come from the pulpit and be disseminated in our lives and invigorate and instigate and inspire sort of uh, our intentions and efforts towards evangelism. Uh, that's the true end for all pastor theologians. We're encouraging, uh, the church to, encouraging, uh, the church to, to preach and, and be the church, if I can use that cliched phrase, uh, in their own particular spheres and realms and circles. Uh, this is how God grows his church. This is how the church functions as the church. It comes back to theology. We have a need for it. And uh, I pray that you are encouraged by this post. I know I went kind of fast. I know I went kind of through these things. Hopefully you can uh, read the links and uh, read the essays that I've been mentioning. And hopefully they have whetted your appetite to uh, read more of them. And you too will be encouraged by how God is um, growing his church through the burgeoning uh, need for pastor theologians. Uh, that's my prayer. That's my prayer for myself. And I hope that it is your prayer as well. So uh, thanks so much for listening. I hope you've been blessed by this particular episode. Uh, I can't wait to uh, come to you again next week, hopefully, Lord willing, uh, with another encouraging episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast. Be sure you subscribe to the show. I appreciate all of your notes of encouragement and support. So thank you. Thank you for praying. Uh, I'll see you on the next episode. Blessings. Blessings.